Welcome to Policy Pod, PORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisena Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Welcome to the Raisena Dialogue 2021. In this panel titled Reclaiming Europe Navigating the Political Compass we'll be talking about the challenges and crises facing the European Union today particularly as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic we'll discuss how the EU positions itself in the world especially as it navigates US China competition and finally we'll talk about the changing perceptions of India as a partner in the European Union and its member states Uh, to discuss these themes today, we have a fantastic panel with us representing countries that are at the forefront of figuring out some of these questions. We're very happy to welcome Minister Augusto Santos Silva, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Portugal, Minister Bogdan Oreski, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Romania, Ante Loga, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Slovenia, and Milena Lazarevic, Director and Co-Founder of European Policy Center in Serbia. I'm Verima Mohan from the German Marshall Fund and I'll be your moderator for this discussion. Minister Silva, let's start this conversation with you since Portugal currently holds the EU presidency. Now, the COVID-19 crisis has brought challenges of governance across the world and the EU has been no stranger to them, uh, first with the response to the pandemic and now with vaccine production and distribution. The EU-China relationship has been somewhat of a roller coaster, hitting a bit of a low at the beginning of the pandemic, to signing the CHI agreement, to now with China imposing sanctions on European members of parliament, think tanks, and researchers. At the same time, you have a good sort of offer for partnership from the Biden administration as it seeks to strengthen its alliances and partnerships. I would want to know from you what you think are the top three challenges the EU faces today that it will have to navigate in 2021 particularly also under Portugal's presidency what would be your priorities over to you minister thank you very much for me the three top priorities are the following ones first of all to roll up roll out the vaccination process in order to guarantee that at least two thirds of our adults can be vaccinated until the end of summer um for for us it is very important to guarantee the so-called herd immunity uh, the second priority is to launch our recovery plans uh, we decided last year to fund this uh, recovery this na- this national recovery plans with a new a uh, financial instrument of the European Union as such the recovery fund and uh, now we are um, about to conclude the the drafts the national uh, plans that have to be uh, reviewed by the commission and approved by the the council of ministers of the European Union and uh, i think until the end of uh, of this uh, summer we need to have this um, this uh, national plan, plans of recovery approved and uh, in order that uh, the the appropriate uh, funding uh, can can um, help the the um, uh, the national governments to um, relaunch the to 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 help 
the recovery of, the, of our economies. Uh, our third priority in terms of external relations is to seize this momentum. We are living a new momentum with the, the, the Biden administration and the, its uh, first uh, decisions. And this momentum is the momentum of uh, re-encounter between the closest allies in the world, uh, Europeans and uh, the Americans. So, and uh, this is uh, very interesting because from a, um, a political point of view, it's a kind of triangle because since the United Kingdom uh, exits the European Union uh, this, uh, this last year, we have now to, to think of this relation as a relation between uh, three uh, main actors, European Union, United Kingdom and United States. Thank you very much. Um, when you're talking about foreign policy priorities, may I ask you about India as well? Because under the Portuguese presidency, uh, Prime Minister Modi will be meeting all EU27 heads of state on May 8th in Porto. Now, as far as I understand, this is a very rare format used for meetings with countries, and India is in a privileged position. How did you decide to focus on India, both at the EU level as well as Portugal? Um, can you tell us about the changing European perceptions of India today? Yes, of course, I would be delighted uh, to do so. Uh, our aims are two. Uh, we have two aims um, in mind. Uh, the first aim is to get um, as uh, a comprehensive as we can uh, envisage relationship of Europe with uh, all the relevant uh, parties, all the relevant actors in the world. Traditionally, we have a strong relationship with Latin America. We have to improve it. Traditionally, we have a close relationship with uh, our neighborhood, both in North Africa and uh, in the Eastern uh, Europe. Traditionally, we have a good relationship with Sub-Saharan Africa, but we have to pay more attention to Asia and to the vital Indo-Pacific region. But in order to have uh, uh, this comprehensive approach, we have also to, to be well balanced in uh, this uh, approach. And in order to have a balanced approach to the Indo-Pacific or to the Asia-Pacific region, we have, of course, to pay attention to our traditional allies in that uh, area, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea. We have to pay attention to the rising influence of China, of course. We have to pay attention to the Asian uh, countries, but we have to pay more attention to India. India is 1.3 billion people. India is one of the most uh, important uh, economies in the world. India is the largest democracy in the world, and the European Union and uh, India have to have um, regular political dialogue and have to uh, improve their cooperation in climate action, in connectivity, in digital, um, and uh, uh, they, uh, India and the European Union, have to uh, relaunch the negotiations on uh, economic agreements because um, agreements um, on trade and investment are very important uh, pathways to develop this uh, uh, friendship and this uh, proximity between these two largest democracies in the world. 
Thank you very much, Minister. Um, let's move to Minister Oreskiu. Um, I would start with the same question about challenges and priorities for the EU. How does it look from Eastern Europe, from Romania? Do you agree with uh, what Mr. Silva has outlined? Well, I, I cannot but fully agree with what um, Augusto just said. Um, I think it's uh, extremely important to focus first on uh, combating the pandemic um, and the efforts which are undertaken at EU level show how difficult it is, but at the same time also show uh, how difficult it would have been without uh, an EU collective effort uh, to combat um, the pandemic, to put together the mechanism for um, acquiring and distributing the vaccines, even if we have, uh, well, certain difficulties in that, but we solve them all the time. Second, um, I couldn't but uh, fully support the um, uh, effort um, to um, uh, well, recover from the economic point of view, the economic crisis, which is prompted by the um, pandemic crisis, is extremely uh, well difficult, and we need to uh, make use of this uh, huge amount of money that uh, is available now for all the member states. And we are looking forward to uh, use this uh, money as soon as possible. And this is yet another um, example of how EU was able to uh, put together a mechanism which is uh, hopefully efficient, but at the same time uh, has uh, enough amplitude uh, to cope with the um, very difficult uh, consequences of the crisis. Um, and also, I think it is important to take a look at um, uh, the lessons learned uh, after the pandemic, because the EU and the whole world, as a matter of fact, uh, well, uh, navigated through uncharted uh, and very uh, troubled waters. And I think um, uh, out of this crisis, there is a number of uh, important lessons that we have learned. First of all, how important multilateralism is, um, and an efficient multilateralism is one important goal that we should we should uh, we should follow. Um, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, it was this temptation of certain uh, uh, states in the world, including EU member states, to act alone, uh, to act unilaterally. But this showed that uh, it is uh, inefficient and counterproductive, uh, and then we started to work together at the level of the EU, but more importantly also at the level of uh, the international community as a whole. And the COVAX uh, uh, well, instrument is perhaps one good example of how we can work, uh, but we can improve, of course, the efficiency of uh, this mechanism and of other uh, multilateral mechanisms. Then uh, another important lesson that we learned is um, uh, the um, uh, relevance of improving our strategic resilience. Resilience uh, means a lot. Resilience domestically, uh, re resilience at international level, including the resilience of our international mechanisms and our international organizations that we are part of. And this is another very important goal. Um, but it's resilience uh, from, uh, uh, well, um, actors which are not like-minded with us in terms of values and uh, in terms of, uh, uh, well, uh, intentions of shaping our uh, decision-making in foreign policy and security issues. And I think strategic resilience uh, means also uh, improving uh, the transatlantic uh, partnership. And I agree with Augusto that the new administration in Washington represents a very good opportunity for uh, on one hand, redressing uh, what was broken and at the same time improving and adding uh, more substance, more instruments, more mechanisms uh, to this. But without, um, uh, without uh, international law and respect for and promotion of democracy and human rights and the rule of law, uh, both multilateralism and uh, resilience cannot be efficient. And this is yet another uh, avenue that we have to uh, follow. Uh, it was this uh, temptation, or perhaps uh, it was the pretext for some uh, states to use the pandemic context uh, in order to um, 
diminish uh, the exercise of rights and freedoms. And uh, I think this shouldn't be allowed by the international community. And definitely EU has a word to say um, about that and to promote uh, democracy and rule of law and human rights uh, at world uh, level. So these are just some of the uh, uh, lessons that we have learned and we uh, have uh, to use these lessons learned, including in the context of the Conference for the Future of Europe that will be launched, uh, will be, will be launched soon. Uh, hopefully on the 9th of, uh, of May, which is also another good opportunity, uh, and this is the second part of, uh, uh, of the answer to your question, uh, well, uh, to come back to our strategic agenda, because, uh, well, despite the uh, pandemic and beyond these lessons learned uh, after the pandemic, we need to go back to, um, to the fundamentals, because we, we also have some uh, issues to correct and make better and improve uh, coming from, well, before uh, this crisis. Wonderful. I, I like that you've given an optimistic outlook and lessons learned from the EU's experience of dealing with the, with the pandemic because it is unprecedented for, for states across the world. And when you speak of like-minded partners and, um, and the values-based um, foreign policy agenda, let me ask you about China. So um, our audience in India, of course, and across the world is quite fascinated by the experience of Central and Eastern Europe with Belt and Road Initiative with the 17 plus one format. Uh, now, Romania has uh, recently limited Chinese investments in core sectors like nuclear power and telecom, something that Western European countries are still struggling to do. And the 17 plus one summit we saw had less than enthusiastic updates this year. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with BRI, how your relationship has, with China has evolved over the last year or so? Well, um, um, Romania has a pragmatic and at the same time a very principled approach as far as the relationship between, uh, uh, between our country and, and China. Um, because our action is uh, based on our uh, current uh, international status. We are a member of the uh, European Union, a NATO ally, and at the same time a strong strategic partner to the United States. And these are um, the, um, well, uh, the, the golden triangle of our foreign and security policy. At the same time, um, our principled approach is um, uh, about um, uh, promoting democratic values, multilateralism, and international law. Um, starting from that, we see our relationship with China, which has uh, a long history. We, um, we have more than 70 uh, years of uh, diplomatic relations and um, a um, ample, uh, and, uh, uh, ample partnership for uh, friendship and cooperation. This is the exact uh, name which was concluded in, uh, in 2004. So we approach our cooperation with China in a realistic manner, uh, given the current uh, status of Romania and the uh, international uh, context. And we also, of course, uh, act in line with the uh, joint communication of 2019 of the High Commissioner, uh, High Representative for Foreign Policy and Security um, Affairs of the European Union and the European Commission, or the, well, the other name is the EU-China Strategic Outlook, mm -hmm. where uh, China is seen both as a, um, a partner, of uh, partner for negotiation, a cooperative partner, and at the same time, um, an economic competitor and a systemic uh, rival. So all these, uh, well, uh, design uh, a comprehensive and at the same time nuanced way um, uh, the EU as a whole sees uh, China. Now, 17 plus 1. 17 plus 1 was designed as um, uh, an economic cooperation platform. And it should stay like that. It should stay um, uh, non-political. It should stay non-ideological. 
um, it is uh, important to see what benefits uh, we can get from this uh, uh, from this cooperation uh, framework. Um, frankly speaking, uh, for the time being, the concrete results for Romania are still to be um, uh, well to be seen, um, and we need um, a, a comprehensive uh, um, you know, analysis of. Uh, what, what are the um, uh, perspectives, um, uh, concrete economic perspectives uh, coming from this, um, uh, uh, from this um, uh, uh, format? As far as the Belt and Road Initiative, we are not uh, a party of this uh, uh, format. Um, um, the um, interconnectivity projects which are designed within the Belt and Road Initiative um, do not include uh, Romania. We are at present very much focused on uh, putting to life the um, uh, interconnectivity projects uh, which are supposed to um, connect uh, us from the economic and strategic point of view um, from the north to the south of the uh, uh, Central uh, European and Southeast uh, European region, also called as the Three Seas uh, region. Uh, we are focusing, for instance, on two very important uh, projects like um, uh, Rail to Sea, connecting the uh, Romanian port of Constanza to the Polish port of Gdansk, uh, or Via Carpatia, which is uh, a road uh, connecting uh, uh, Poland to uh, Romania as well, all through the countries which are um, well, uh, in between us. And I think these are the projects um, uh, which we want to, um, uh, for instance, to develop together with our like-minded partners. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Minister. Um, shifting to you, Minister Logar. Now, Slovenia also has a strong economic partnership with China, at the same time, a political and security partnership with the United States. I would like to hear your opinion of the Biden administration and its agenda um, and priorities, which have become clear in the beginning of this year, as well as what the EU has put on the table for strengthening transatlantic ties. How do you assess um, well, thank you for question. Um, we have uh, a quite vibrant uh, bilateral exchange with uh, um, China, but at the same time, it's very unbalanced one. So we hardly export, and and we are importing waste, uh, vast amount of of goods from from China. If we compare it with our trade to United States, for example, for our companies, it's more important to have market, uh, United States market, as we export, I think, double more than we export to China. If we consider, let's say, posting European Union towards those two superpowers, so China or United States, I think we all agree uh, around this virtual table that uh, the strongest ally and partner to European Union uh, are United States. So in that sense, I think it's urgent, as Augusto already presented, to enhance cooperation between European Union and United States. And I'm, I'm very glad that we had a, recently had a conversation with uh, Secretary of State Mr. Blinken during Portuguese presidency and the Foreign Affairs Council in Brussels. And I think this is of utmost importance to, let's say, speed up this uh, way of cooperating. For example, last EU-United States summit was in 2014. I mean, being two strongest allies and having discussion on the top level 
seven years ago. I think this is a way too long to wait. So I think during Portuguese presidency, or if not during Slovenian presidency, there should be a EU United States summit. Where should we, let's say, strive for uh, mutual cooperation on a, on a global scale? I mean, those are the two biggest market, democratical market, uh, that has jointly roughly one third of uh, world GDP. And if in the meantime there was an, you know, like Indo-Pacific free trade agreement adopted recently, uh, we stopped discussion few years ago between European Union and United States. So there should be, I think, next step as well, comprehensive free trade agreement be be between the two entities. And uh, as concerns Slovenia and future, so incoming presidency, we will do our utmost to enhance this cooperation and talks in starting new discussion with the uh, Biden administration. Thank you very much. Um, if I can be a little provocative, um, do you think the timing of the CHI agreement was a good idea just before the Biden administration came into, power, into office and they had highlighted a little bit their concerns with the agreement? Do you think this, this was a good idea, the timing of the agreement with, from the EU side and going forward? Um, will it be increasingly difficult for the EU to, to navigate these two strong partnerships? Well, the European Union is based on democratical values and on a dialogue. So, the, let's say, adoption procedure is the lengthy one. It means that from, let's say, a scrap to the blueprint of the legislative proposal of, or of an agreement, it takes some time which is bad for, let's say, efficiency, but is very good for fighting and defending this democratical value. And even though there was an agreement on the in inter-institutional level, at the, at the, let's say, evening of uh, German presidency, there still needs to be a lengthy discussion within member states and as well um, European Parliament to accommodate all second thoughts or maybe issues that are outstanding. However, I think it was a very, let's say, not very wise decision from the Chinese side to take sanctions against some members of European Parliament or some members of member states that were within the bodies they are deciding on, uh, let's say, EU or um, sanction decision within the European uh, Council. So, in that sense, I think the mistake was done for the time being from uh, Chinese side, and I'm really, let's say, <laughs> uh, interesting to see how the discussion within the European Parliament that at the end has to ratify the agreement will take place and what tones we will hear there in the discussion. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, moving to Melina. Now, Serbia is in a very interesting position. You are an EU accession country. At the same time, since the beginning of the pandemic, you've benefited a lot from um, medical assistance from China in the beginning, and now this vaccine rollout program as the rest of Europe is still struggling to come to, to the same point. Um, how do you think this is changing the conversations in Belgrade and the region? 
thank you, um, uh, Garima, for that question. Yes, indeed, uh, Serbia is a country that um, is somehow still uh, trying to sit on all the possible chairs, <laughs> as uh, was mentioned by some uh, foreign diplomats as well. And um, um, I think that um, during the pandemic, uh, um, influence of uh, China in particular, Russia not as much, I can say, but to an extent Russia as well has uh, increased substantially. And uh, the Serbian leadership, uh, the political leadership for the time being has uh, successfully shown that uh, this friendship with China has benefited uh, uh, Serbia um, in terms of uh, medical assistance and vaccination. Um, at the same time, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that um, uh, the president even himself uh, um, spoke about, uh, you know, um, uh, end of European solidarity and uh, similar uh, made similar statements in uh, some very important addresses, uh, which I think after after that uh, was uh, to a certain extent amended, although not fully. Um, and uh, we have seen uh, to an extent that somehow EU has been um, called out on every single mistake, you know, at that time, at the beginning of the pandemic, to compare, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in Europe, to compare China, that had already been dealing uh, with the pandemic for a while, with the reactions of the EU, which was at that moment being thrown into, into the crisis, was truly unfair. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, uh, this showed that, um, uh, let's say, uh, the position of Serbia outside of the European Union does create, um, let's say, significant space for political maneuver. And here I'm uh, echoing um, uh, something that uh, uh, Mr. Aurescu uh, mentioned. He actually said that, you know, Romania as an EU member country, as a NATO member country, does have to have a specific uh, and very, very uh, uh, cautious and very structured re relationship with China. This is exactly what Serbia and the Western Balkan region to, ex to a large extent, although some of the countries of the region are uh, already in the NATO, but this is what we are lacking. Um, and uh, I think that this is showing the importance of the European Union's geostrategic uh, role and position in the region. I believe that the EU needs to become much more geostrategic in its, um, in its um, uh, relationship with the Western Balkan region and Serbia as the biggest country of the region uh, in particular. Um, it was a mistake, in my view, of the previous Juncker's Commission uh, to um, explicitly um, state that uh, enlargement would not happen during uh, that mandate, although uh, uh, President of the Commission at that time was speaking about the very moment of accession, a lot of people saw that as a denunciation of the enlargement process itself. And we could feel that there was really a lack of attention uh, to the to the region uh, paid in the, uh, on the part of the EU. The EU was struggling with its uh, own crisis, but at the same time, considering that the region uh, is very much inside of the EU and very much uh, geographically surrounded by the EU, um, the EU should not forget uh, the, the strategic importance uh, that it has and, and that it plays in the region. I think that with the new uh, Commission, um, this um, uh, problem has uh, somewhat been um, uh, fixed, although not fully. Uh, of course, as, as with uh, every policy and every negotiation within the EU, things do take time and sometimes, you know, starting from a good idea, you end up with uh, numerous compromises which, uh, which can tend to water down some good ideas from the very beginning. The EU uh, presented a new enlargement approach uh, to the region um, uh, some months ago, 
um, and the idea was indeed to create, uh, to, to turn enlargement into a more political process with a greater awareness of uh, this strategic importance of the European Union in the region and at the same time awareness of the strong influences of the non-democratic, non-European uh, influences uh, in the region. Um, at, at this moment, uh, we are waiting to see uh, how much uh, uh, this political process will uh, really uh, emanate itself. We saw, for example, that um, in the joint declaration uh, uh, um, uh, agreed within uh, among the European Union's institutions on the Conference on the Future of Europe, which uh, Minister Aurescu um, uh, rightfully um, uh, mentioned, uh, the Western Balkans are not mentioned, although we are not member states. Um, this region is an accession region, as you said yourself, and I think that it would be very important to include the region in some sort of an observer status um, uh, in this discussion and conversation on the future of Europe. Because if the leadership, if the political leadership and the civil society and the citizens of this region do not feel as part of the mainstream discussions and conversations, policy conversations in the Euro European Union, they are likely to feel less European. And you know, we cannot feel Chinese, we cannot feel uh, that we are Asian, we are in the middle of Europe. But this, um, let's say, false uh, uh, brotherhood with, with China, especially in Serbia, is being promulgated and it, it is being uh, very much uh, emphasized by the political leadership for their own reasons. And, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, the, the relationship uh, with China and all this uh, influence and um, all, all the support that we are getting uh, as citizens of Serbia, we don't know at what price this comes. You know, people see and feel the benefits right now, but we don't know how we are paying for these vaccines. Nobody has, uh, no, you know, uh, nobody has uh, uh, provided any sort of a price list. And at the same time, uh, what we know for the time being from anecdotal evidence is that Chinese um, investors are being promised most of the large scale um, uh, investment projects in Serbia in the coming years. Now, I can, I think I can, I can bet, you know, uh, that uh, these kinds of in investments will come at a price and that in the end it will be the Serbian citizens who will be paying the price of these, um, of these uh, vaccines through those investments, which will probably be uh, higher, uh, more expensive uh, with the embedded corruption um, costs um, uh, than, you know, if we, if we had proper public procurement procedures uh, for such investments. So um, in that sense, I think that, you know, uh, the European Union needs to, to take a much, uh, much more strategic uh, approach to, to this region and really this is the place, the place where the European Union can and should pro prove its geostrategic um, um, strength and, and role. So let's, uh, let's see. I'm being optimistic still and I think that the EU is learning on its past mistakes, uh, although sometimes it is taking time and it is, uh, it is maybe being slower uh, than we would want it to be, but I think that, uh, that we can expect uh, greater awareness um, uh, on the part of the European Union. Great. Thank you so much, Milena. That's, that was fascinating to hear this whole picture that you've painted of the debate in Serbia and so our audience, particularly in India, has learned a lot from this. Uh, speaking of the EU being strategic, final round of questions for all the speakers, taking a look at the time. I found it very interesting, the EU debate around the Indo-Pacific. So when the global strategy came out all those years ago, Asia was hardly mentioned, and now we're at a position where we have a debate about the Indo-Pacific in various member states, as well as the EU level, we would probably see uh, council conclusions in this month. I would like to ask 
uh, all of you what do you think of this development, particularly placing India in this context? Um, is there a renewed interest in engagement with India within your own countries? Um, and how do you see the EU's Indo-Pacific approach? Is, is it seen as you know, a region far away, or do you think it is high time the EU engages with this dynamic region? And maybe we can start in the reverse order with Minister Lokar. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, there, there's no vac vacuum in uh, international relations. So uh, the time when <laughs> there's somebody moves out, somebody else can step in. Or at the same time, when ambitious grows, the one that has a potential can influence in the international relations. And definitely India, foreign policy of India now has much bigger, let's say, ambitious that, let's say, decades ago, which I think is good. And in that sense, it represents a very young and vibrant economy. And uh, as, let's say, uh, cards on the global uh, poker game are changing again the sides, and as well in the situation where uh, U.S. Secretary of State is talking about um, techno-democracy and techno-autocracy, definitely we have a new regrouping in the world order. And especially when multilateralism has its own, let's say, down, downsize, it's time to find the new strategic partners. And India, in that sense, here plays a very important role. Uh, more or less, we share the same value. It's the democratic system. It's a big market. Um, it is an ambitious uh, administration. And in that sense, two, let's say, strategic partners can get together. In that sense, I think it's time for the renewal or revival of a relation between European Union and India. And, for example, if I'm talking from the Slovenia perspective, from this, this Pacific side, uh, in, in India, it's one of the most important market for us, and it's closer for our port copper uh, then, for example, China, and it's in a way natural uh, trade exchange via to, to Europe as well from India. In that sense, we are more than interested to enhance our cooperation. And as well as European Union seek for, uh, let's say, new uh, partners in uh, defending democratical values, India is very interesting interlocutors. And in that sense, we see like this cooperation between European Union and India as one of the future very ten tense, intense and creative uh, forum to find the solution for the better future. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Oleski. Yes, uh, <clears throat> I fully agree with Anje. Uh, it's very important to see, um, uh, well, um, India as a strategic partner of the European Union, and it is a strategic partner of the uh, European Union. Um, that's why um, it is uh, no accident that we are preparing um, this uh, Indo-Pacific um, strategy of the European uh, Union, and uh, Romania is ready to, um, uh, well, to contribute, um, well, with its own, 
well uh, added value to this um, uh, well uh, construction, which is very uh, important. We have uh, areas where we uh, have know-how, like uh, cybersecurity. We are hosting, uh, starting with this year, the um, uh, Cyber Center of the European Union in Bucharest, and um, there are many other perspectives that we can work on. Um, we have. Um, started um, for already some uh, years to work um, on uh, improving and expanding our relations with um, with the countries in the region uh, with Japan this year we are working for um, well, upgrading the level of our relations to the level of strategic partnership we are working hard on that uh, South Korea is already a strategic partner of uh, Romania for already um, some time and we are working to uh, develop and uh, enhance uh, the cooperation with uh, with South Korea we are working also on uh, uh, improving our relationship with Australia and with India. I may, I may say that we have a special uh, relation uh, grounded on an extended partnership, which we have concluded in 2013, um, covering uh, a wide range of uh, sectoral cooperation from defense to uh, space and energy, IT and C and tourism. And of course, uh, we want to, uh, to do more together. Um, but remember that uh, what I have uh, mentioned in my previous intervention, uh, what is important is uh, uh, to uh, work for improving our strategic resilience. And um, for that, we need to work together with like-minded partners. And indeed, as Anja said, well, India is a like-minded partner of the European Union. We share the same values, uh, we share the same democratic system, and um, we share the same attachment to multilateralism. And these are very good bases for working together. That's why I'm looking forward to the benefits of um, our, well, of improving our uh, partnership with India and at the same time, the benefits of this uh, uh, strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much. And uh, Minister Silva. Um, thank you. Since I, I agree with my colleagues, I will be very brief, uh, making uh, just um, three points. The first one is um, our strategy is a comprehensive one. This is not a question of replacing, for instance, Latin America with India. It's a question of diversifying our partnerships of multiplying our interlocutors. Secondly, we need India to perform some of our main goals in global agendas. Uh, let's see uh, the climate action. We cannot achieve our goals, um, the goals that we defined for 2050, without the engagement of larger economies uh, like India. Third, there are uh, <clears throat> benefits that we can share if we look at uh, connectivity, with, if we look at uh, tech, digital technology, we, we, if you look at um, the, um, the human resources um, and uh, the qualifications in uh, technology, if we look to, to trade and uh, investment, we see clearly what could be the mutual benefits of a Euro-Indian relationship. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Milena, coming to you, how do you see the role of other external actors in the region? Japan, I know, has a ambassador at large for the Western Balkans has been increasing its presence in the region. We'd be curious to see if you think Indo-Pacific partners are interesting for Serbia as well, or if it's distracting attention from this region. What's your take on that? 
Well, I believe that um, uh, definitely um, since uh, the relationship between uh, the region and particularly Serbia and India have traditionally been very cordial and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the old Yugoslavia and India were partners in the non-aligned uh, movement uh, back uh, back in the previous century. Um, I don't think that Serbia has, uh, let's say, any any reason not to fully comply with any EU policies um, um, uh, relating to to India, and I think that Serbia will be very much in compliance uh, with those. In fact, India has gained more uh, visibility in Serbia uh, during the um, uh, COVID crisis, especially uh, with regards to the vaccination program, because uh, um, it has donated uh, 150,000 um, of the COVID shield vaccines pr uh, produced in, uh, in India. It, it has uh, um, uh, provided them as a gift to, to Serbia. So, you know, this, is, uh, this has been quite important for the visibility and, uh, and uh, showing this uh, positive and cordial relationship between India. Where Serbia does have a problem and where it, uh, we still don't see any, any uh, involvement and, and change and shift in this position is non-alignment with the um, uh, policies, uh, with the European Common uh, Foreign and Security Policy with regards to China and Russia. So Serbia has basically not been complying with uh, any of the European Union's um, uh, resolutions concerning um, concerning these two countries for a number of years now. Uh, for some reason, uh, it uh, it did comply with uh, with a couple of resolutions concerning Belarus, which was uh, a little bit of um, of, a, of a shift. But overall, uh, we see that this is where the real uh, problem with Serbia's alignment with the EU's foreign policy lies. So I don't think that in any sense uh, India as a democratic country, which uh, which has already been mentioned, that this relationship can be in any case in any way disturbing uh, for Serbia's EU accession process. Where what we do see as disturbing in terms of the even the formal alignment with the EU uh, EU law are particularly um, are cases of, uh, of China and Russia. Thank you very much. Um, with this, I think we will close this panel. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. It was very interesting to see an optimistic assessment of the EU's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lessons to be learned to need to strengthen multilateralism. The focus on India and the Portuguese presidency, and I'm sensing strengthening relationship with the United States and the Slovenian one. Um, and of course, the importance of India, the rediscovery in the sense of India as a partner, not only in trade and economics, but also in, uh, in its moving global goods, such as climate action, digital connectivity, and an important pillar in the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, that, those were all really important, really useful takeaways. Thank you so much to my four panelists for taking the time for joining us uh, and providing some excellent food support uh, for Rice in a Dialogue 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.